Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. This week, we're very happy to welcome William Neal. William Neal describes himself as a landscape photographer, but I've been looking through his website and his recent book, and I don't know what would be the appropriate term, a nature photographer, an outdoor photographer, because you do a lot more than just landscape photography, don't you? Yes, I do. It's uh, it's kind of the core of what I do, but I have learned over the years that taking tangents is good for my my well-being and my art. You've been taking photographs for, what, 40-odd years? You've been published in every place. And th- this is, you know, we talk to people who are who are in niches in photography. And I look at the work of someone like you, and it's so expansive that on the one hand, there's no people in your photos, which I find interesting. But on the other hand, you seem to be photographing everything in the outdoor world from from big landscapes, sort of Ansel Adams type landscapes to trees and flowers and, and the ice in the, in the Antarctic. It, what for you is the thread? Is it just what's there, nature? Yeah, it's where I am at the time and what, what inspires me. It's pretty simple. It's, it's um, uh, living in a place like Yosemite. It's pretty easy to get inspired with the landscape, but I, I've been inspired by photographers. Best example is Ernest Haas who took, covered a lot of ground in all kinds of photography, nature, and photojournalism. I mean, he was a photojournalist, but he did great nature photography. And that that encouraged me in my experiences with Ansel. He was a commercial photographer. He photographed everything. And um, I had that as an example. I started working at Ansel's gallery in 1980, and I was 26. And so I'm hanging around Ansel and, and meeting Joel Meyerowitz and Ernest Haas and Jerry Yulsman and uh, John Sexton and, you know, landscape photographers uh, met Arnold Newman. You know, people, Ansel did not bring in all landscape photographers. So I get, I moved to Yosemite in 77 I'm, because I want to be in a place like that to photograph. And I was working for the Park Service, National Park Service, and taking my film in to get processed through the Kodak uh, drop bag. And, um, and then a couple of years later, I had a job there. So I became a photographer all of a sudden and was exposed to uh, lots of different photographers, like I just described. So, so it was sort of accidental. You didn't grow up thinking you wanted to be an artist, you wanted to be a photographer. Well, I, not, no, no, but I did take art all through high school, just because I enjoyed it. I didn't have any ambitions towards it in any way it's just uh that was my favorite elective so and that you know didn't did not include photography it included every other medium but probably in yeah the, drawing and painting etc and that was in late 60s early 70s uh, so you know i started to during while i was a kid i traveled my family and i traveled to national parks so that kind of started my interest in nature and uh, during college, I worked in national parks in the summers. And after I graduated from school in Boulder, I was putting out applications for jobs and I needed 
more than a three-month job, like more than a summer job. And Yosemite was a great place for that because it's open all year round. And I landed uh, a job in Yosemite. I moved from Boulder to Yosemite, and I've been in the area since. So it developed from, um, you know, early childhood experience and then uh, my backpacking experiences in the national parks I worked in and in North Cascades and Glacier National Park. Um, and I'd come back to school. I, in the middle of college, I switched degrees to from political science to environmental conservation because I wanted to learn more about nature. So I'm taking plant ecology and dynamics of mountain ecosystems and environmental physics and learning about you know, internal combustion engines and fusion and fission. And, you know, so I, it, it covered a lot of ground. It was a, a new, there weren't even environmental studies departments back then, but Boulder had cobbled together uh, multidisciplinary kind of courses from different departments. And that fit me perfectly. Of course, once I graduated, I wanted to be a photographer and I never used the formal education, but the, the background and, you know, a little bit of natural science, a little bit of uh, political science related to the environment was a good foundation for where I ended up going. And then I end up in Yosemite and Ansel's, you know, kind of the ultimate environmentalist in a lot of ways, using his art as separate from taking the images. He used it, you know, in a, really in a political sense, ultimately. As you explain this, and I'm looking at some of the photos on your website, how is a photographer like you not an environmentalist? You're documenting nature in its purest form, and in some ways, you're you're making a statement of this is what nature is. And, and if you, you know, I'm thinking of this photo I once saw of someone at the edge of a cliff, right? There's this famous cliff where people go to have pictures taken of themselves. And you see the person at the edge of the cliff. And then you see a photo looking back at the line of people who are waiting to take the picture at the end of the cliff. And that's the sort of <laughs> bastardization of nature um, I, in your photos, I'm not seeing lines of people behind you. I'm not getting that impression. They look to me like much more isolated areas very often. Uh, mostly, yes. I, I prefer to do that. And it's actually in Yosemite Valley, as crowded as, as it gets, it's it's easy to park your car and walk two minutes into the woods, you know, where nobody else is parked and you're, you have a, a quiet experience. But, you know, more and more, you know, I've been teaching one-on-one -on -one classes in Yosemite, and I take people to Tunnel View where everybody is lined up. And yeah, and had a couple experiences this year where, you know, it was phenomenal conditions, better than I've ever seen. And you know, there are a lot of photographers taking the same picture. Yeah. So, you know, you have to face that uh, reality of of um, redoing things that have been done. It's kind of like a rephotographic process. Yeah, it's it's like a, an interpretation, like say someone playing a piece of music, interpreting it a little bit differently. Well, on a post on Facebook, somebody was saying, you know, I'll never go there. I'll never photograph there. Yeah, and and I I say that's fine. That's absolutely cool. I I hadn't planned to go there, but conditions were such that was the only place where it was so awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but. I also put it out there that what if Ansel had thought that? So whoever before him had been at Inspiration Point and photographed it in, you know, an excellent photograph, then why in the hell was Ansel standing there? Yeah, but there weren't as many people doing it back then, were there? 
They didn't have yeah. cell phones and, you know, it, it was different. Yeah, it was different. That's true. We're going to talk about your book in a few minutes, Light on the Landscape, Photographs and Lessons from a Life in Photography. And you mentioned that you've um, written and contributed to a magazine called Outdoor Photographer. Now, I don't know this because I'm in the UK. There's a magazine here, Outdoor Photography, that I have seen. And every issue, they have a number of locations to shoot and how to get there and how difficult it is to get there. And I keep thinking, why do you want to go to the place that the magazine is telling you to meet other photographers, maybe, but why not find places on your own, right? Yeah, I think that's, you know, a goal for a lot of photographers. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's fine. I used to do a lot of a lot of backpacking and a lot of photographers still do that in order to get to new places. And, God, the, the, you know, as I got older and, and got heavier equipment, you know, I went less far away from the road. And I, I found, you know, very what I consider very magical photographic situations that are right next to the road all the time. And they're not broad landscapes, they're details of the landscape, but you know, the uh, places in El Capitan Meadow in Yosemite that a tree that I photographed you know, 30 years ago is still there. And I, you know, nobody stops to photograph it. You know, it's, it's not a destination, <laughs> no, but the, you know, Instagram, et cetera, is, you know, made it all that much worse. You have a magazine putting it out there. An outdoor photographer in the U.S. does that, you know, location uh, finding kind of articles. And and that drives people to locations, but it's accelerated so much uh, yeah. with Instagram. People, you take a picture and post it and, you know, people are there the next day. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the pace of somebody. And that's, that's discomforting, but well, I like the idea of of being able to use something like that as a starting point and then go explore. I don't know how many people will go to that location, say, I got it, and then drive away to the next location. But for me, sometimes it's just I want to find something that's that's nearby because obviously, okay, this one two-meter spot that you're standing in looking at this panorama – is not going to be the only good shot there. It's not like you're going to, you know, walk 50 feet to the side and, and everything's just ruined. So there's got to be more in the area that you can you know, capture and look for something new. So I kind of want to defend that a little bit, even though I know it's being abused and there, there are just too many people showing up. Well, just in terms of teaching in Yosemite, and, you know, somebody comes from Australia and they haven't been there before. And yeah, starting out at sunrise at Inspiration Point is makes perfect sense. Yeah, they're glad to have been there. But I I if they start out with a wide angle lens, I pretty quickly get them on the telephoto zoom and picking out sections as as parts of a landscape. Oh, I like the light there. And, you know, somebody else likes the light over there. And. I'd rather photograph Bridal Veil Falls instead of Half Dome. And, you know, it, it starts to differentiate, you know, people's different, different interests and different perspectives. So yeah. it starts to get them wherever they are, just happens to be in front of, you know, very highly photographed place that they're taking a super iconic location and picking out personal favorite sections of it. So 100 millimeters, 300, 400, and that makes it, more personal. That's interesting because a lot of people who talk about landscape photography tell you to use wide angle lenses and they're looking for the big scope. And I'm looking at your photos and they're 
they're sometimes very big, but they're details of the very big. And I find that interesting. My, my pet peeve in landscape photography is the thing you see in magazines all the time. So let's say you've got a Scottish castle in the distance and a lock between you and then a wet rock in the foreground. And they make sure the wet rock in the foreground is visible, whereas you want to see the castle, right? They're trying to do this thing with distance. And I hadn't noticed in your photos that they do look like they're done with telephoto lenses and not with wide angle lenses. And that makes a big difference. Well, I've, I've thought for a long time that I wanted to take photographs that asked questions, not answered questions. So a wide view describes the location. You can feel the foreground. You can feel what's at your feet. You can feel where the sky is. Everything's oriented. And I generally like to remove clues, which is the opposite of what people generally try to do. And and people that are trying to photograph the whole experience in one photograph wonder why they might be a little disappointed when they get back. So, and look at their photographs and the impact's not there. So to differentiate, you know, different parts of the landscape really helps them focus on a a stronger personal vision. Yeah, yeah. Um, You mentioned that your equipment's getting heavier, so you're using longer lenses, so you've got a lot more to carry. Well, I was referring mostly to switching from 35 back in the, the late 70s and early 80s. I switched to four by five. Oh, so okay. From that, so from uh, 82 through the mid, uh, maybe 2005, I used four by five. And you're using digital now? Yeah, and I switched to digital fully uh, since then. So that saves a little bit of weight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but... For for a while there, I, I was part of Canon's Explorer of Lights, and and I carried my four by five and Canon gear in one bag, so I would shoot my four by five shots and then pull out the, the thirty five. This is film days, and yeah, I'd uh-huh. shoot shoot the you know similar same images with with the thirty five for Canon's use. So so your book light on the landscape. Um, we like to say that we don't talk about gear on the show, which means we do sometimes talk about gear, but we don't have big episodes on which is the best lens. And we like to talk to photographers who teach and and who have written books that don't focus on gear. And your book is a bunch of short sections, a few hundred words with a photo or two talking about ideas rather than saying, use this lens, use this, you know, aperture and all that. This book is is a summation of your 40 years. How did you decide what to talk about in this? Did you look through your photographs and find the ideas that they presented, or did you start with the ideas and then look for the photos? Well, it's good to understand that the book was written over about 23 years when I was writing a column for outdoor photographers. Okay. So monthly, bi-monthly, over, you know, and I've written about 150 columns. Okay. And there's 60 in the book. So, you know, each time I had a column due, I'd look, like you say, I'd look through photographs and sometimes a, a lesson had already occurred to me. Well, I better talk about the background behind the flower instead of the flower or something like that, where uh, then I find the photograph. But usually the photograph tells me what to talk about. And so sometimes I, I just, I love this photograph. What can I say about it? I want to show it and I want to write. So I'm writing something about it. And um, no, I learned uh, uh, from actually watching Ansel in person when he was writing his book, Examples. And I was at his house and he was on his IBM Selectric and, and uh, you know, he's writing some technical, but a lot of it's stories. 
It's just how you decided to stand where or who you were with or what the weather was like or how you waited hours or how you just got lucky or all those things that we all experience. Uh, it's just really more storytelling. And, and, and so it was, you know, very incremental as I wrote the columns, the, the ideas came to mind. In the book, there are a couple of ideas, some subject matters where we blended a couple of columns. So how do you learn where to stand? And I'm thinking again, the difference between wide angle and telephoto. Someone's going to take a photo with a wide angle lens and they're going to have everything there and they're not going to be able to crop too much to focus in on details, but you're deciding what details to pick. How do you pick them? It's hard to answer that without examples, but when you're before a scene, what do you look for? Well, I tend to be uh, very interested in graphics. So uh, I always thought that I wanted to photograph color like a black and white photographer. So I had a professor in college who wanted me to shoot black and white. It was a black and white course. And I was I was dying black and white photographs to try to make them color just to, because that's how much I wanted to do color. And he didn't like nature much. And and so he, he was kind of discouraged me. You know, he was a uh, he was from New York and very much an urban photographer. And, you know, we're in Boulder, Colorado, and I was into nature. And I took two semesters with him. And at the end of the second semester, we had I had my portfolio review with him. And he kind of he didn't really give up on me, but he realized <laughs> I wasn't I was not moving in the direction he had tried to persuade me. <laughs> so he goes to his bookshelf behind his desk, you know, and pulls out Minor White. He pulls out Wind Bullock and um, Edward Weston, Brett Weston, you know, who did a lot of, you know, obviously, black and white, but very graphic, small scene photography type of subject. And I said, that was like magical. Okay. And I, but I was into color. So, so who's doing that type of thing with color? You know, I don't see much, you know, there's not that much being done. This is, you know, in the mid seventies. And so that was kind of, I said, God, if I could be the, the minor white of color photography, I would be a happy boy, you know? And, uh, you know, that was, that was where that started from. And so picking out sections was something they did a lot, you know, red West and, you know, kelp details, ice details, peeling paint, you know, all those things. Um, they were not doing many broad landscapes and, I started out with a Spotmatic, Cam, uh, Pentax Spotmatic, and it came with extension tubes, and I was into close-ups. So I started out doing, you know, macro photography a lot, and and you know, doing moving to an eight by ten, I'm shooting, you know, a three feet wide scene, you know, instead of a macro scene. So that was broadening out for me at the time, and so these. The learning to see the structure at a close-up, you know, with with ice patterns, you know, where where's the where's the graphic design that interests me, or thinking of a photograph of mine of a in Yosemite of an alder tree against a granite boulder, and there's a river below and a sky above, and I just zoom in on the the tree and the and the and the granite boulder and, and isolate the section that was most important to me. So somehow I had had that instinct to do to isolate things like that. 
I find it interesting because it's not that common. And you're talking about graphics, and it reminds me of something I probably mentioned several times on the podcast, um, a documentary about William Eggleston where he's talking about how he takes photographs. And when he looks at the photographs when they're printed, he also looks at them upside down because he's less interested in the subject itself than what the shapes and the colors and the light represent. Yeah, and another factor with the 4 by 5 is is – you know, using a uh, having a screen that is four by five inches shows you more of what's going on, and it's upside down and backwards, so it's abstracted in that sense. That's true. Yeah, you put a wide angle lens on a thirty five millimeter and try to see the um, minute spaces between something that may really be important, but it's so small in your little viewfinder you don't necessarily focus on it. But you know, if you're if you're using a telephoto on a 35 or using a four by five with a nice big screen, you know, you're seeing those uh, things that change as you shuffle your feet. Yeah. You know, it's a dance, it's a dance uh, process, you know, it's like up, down, left, right. Oh, you know, I've moved there and I got that space and lost it, lost the tree behind there that I want and I better find another spot and you're just uh, doing the jig. <laughs> <laughs> You were talking about the teacher who didn't like what you were doing. And, and another thing that I was thinking is, I don't know if the term academic photography is correct, but there is a, an, an element in photography that's in exhibits and it's in museums, which is all very about things. And, and it's not about beauty. I, I don't know how to describe it. You know, the way portrait photographers, you want portraits of people with expressions like they're in passport photos. Um, and there aren't the photography... Photography as beauty is not respected very much anymore. Why is this? It's just that, the, you know, you see so much of it, maybe. It's, it's, it's an intellectual perspective that, you know, that you're not, it's not conceptual enough. It's like you have to be thinking that, you know, this is a um, suburb that is, I'm thinking of, um, oh, Robert Adams or something where, you know, you're describing a uh, development in Denver, mm. you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it describes the place and it's an interesting subject, but it's not like you say about beauty. Mm. There are people that come to mind that, that have crossed that boundary and, and specifically Richard Miserac in desert cantos who did, you know, very much new topographic type of landscapes with an eight by 10 that are just, you know, subtle and gorgeous. And, and even though the subject isn't, you know, of a classically beautiful item, it's their photographs are beautiful or look through Cape light by Joel Meyerowitz. And they're, that's an incredibly moving book. Yeah. It's very powerful. And yeah. um, he photographed me with his eight by 10, by the way. Are you in one of his books? No, no, and oh. I'm a redhead, and he, I didn't make it. But <laughs> I, he was—he uh, came to Yosemite in the mid '80s and had his eight by ten, and he, he was—I heard this both from Haas and Meyerowitz that they were intimidated about photographing in Yosemite because of Ansel. And I'm thinking, you know, in my 20s, you know, BS, you know, I, I don't go with that. But, but uh, you know, Meyerowitz took us to a hotel not so far from here, an old hotel, and was photographing interiors, which would be very soft, subtle, eight by 10 negative, color negative film type of subject. It was fascinating to watch him, you know, and he's photographing Yosemite, but he's doing his style of things. But he, he also photographed 
street photography on the mall in Yosemite with his Leica. And that was, that was like ballet. It was yeah. so elegant. It was like in June with thousands, of, you know, hundreds of people walking up and down. He's leading a workshop group, about five or 10 of us through the crowds and showing how he, how he did street photography. So back to an early question, you know, how did I get diverse? You know, it's part of being exposed to that type of thing. Yeah. There's some of the photographs in Cape Light that actually remind me of that graphical element you're talking about. There's the one photograph where he's looking through that passageway out to the sea or the other one with the sheets blowing in the wind on the clothesline. They're just mm. fascinating, memorable photographs. And it's less for what they represent than for the overall, well, I guess, graphicness of them. So the, so the beauty is there. And yeah. It's not not a classic nature type of photograph. Yeah, I guess that's part of it. We, th we think that nature is going to be beautiful or it's going to be ugly, whereas we don't think the pictures of houses are going to have the same kind of beauty. I, I don't have an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you lead workshops, do people ask about gear, which, you know, focal length, which aperture and things like that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I used to teach group workshops where you get a lot of that and, and I teach one-on-one -on -one courses, you know, so I'm working with one student and they know my orientation. So, you know, yes, they talk about it. We do talk about equipment, but almost all of them um, tell me they want to come to Yosemite and, and see how I see Yosemite, show, show them how I find yeah. things to photograph. And certainly equipment comes up, but it's not the focus for sure. Yeah. So, and I don't stop them from photographing icons either, which... Yeah. Well, everyone has to have something to send to the friends and family, you know, I was here, rather yeah. than the photos that really yeah. matter. But I guess well, it, it does matter in a way, right? It's checking off a box on a list. Yeah, but you, you, it's very useful to, to describe for yourself, you know, where you've been and even, you know, if you never show it to anybody. It's, yeah. And like you said, usually ends up going to family or friends. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, at, at the same time, you're going to see something different depending on the day, depending on the weather, depending on the light. So, you know, it's – yeah, this is a very uh, recognizable spot, but hopefully there's going to be something different there unless it's just, you know, hey, it's 11 o'clock and the sky is blue, you know. Well, what happens in, in my sessions in Yosemite is that I take them to iconic locations. Uh to some degree, not, not totally, but you know, it's hard to avoid them. So, you know, yeah. there are places I take people down to the river. There's great views of El Cap and, and they get out their wide angle lens and get, get some shots. And then I start throwing stones in the river and photographing ripples. And I show them what I'm doing. And, you know, 45 minutes later, we've been done nothing but doing abstracts of, of uh, water ripples with El Cap reflected yeah. in the river. But, you don't know what you're really seeing. I, I've always thought that landscape photography is travel photography in a way, except oh, yeah. you, you're in the place where you don't really need to go very far. You're, you're, everyone else needs <laughs> to go there or other beautiful locations. Um, I, I, you do have some pictures from Antarctica um, on your website, uh, but it, it's kind of hard if you're not in a location where you have all this beauty, isn't it? And you can't travel. Well, you know, I picked a place to live where I can photograph without traveling. 
So part of the the dangers of living in fire country is I live in a you know a, a forest at about 2,000 feet. There's oak and pine and manzanita is a very flammable brush we have here and um, plenty to photograph. I've been photographing peeling bark on my manzanita bushes and and I planted things to photograph. I have plum trees and irises and so you know I I've been advocating for a long time to photograph at home because I taught people for so long that get their camera out of the mothballs and go on a trip to wherever Yosemite or Death Valley or something. And, and, you know, it takes a while for them to get warmed up and they haven't been practicing, not only not practicing their, you know, mechanical part of using the camera, but they haven't um, practiced seeing. Mm -hmm. So I was all prepared for the pandemic in that sense. You know, I'm, I've worked to myself for, for almost 40 years, so I'm used to being at home, not to go anywhere. <laughs> and um, I chose a place to live where there was plenty to photograph out my front door. And I often have tried to encourage people to find something in their backyard or local county park, you know, or a little waterfall or who knows what it might be. Um that they can go back to and get to know and practice and and practice seeing, practice uh, seeing what weather weather patterns are, all all the things that contribute to being a good landscape photographer, so that they're um, they're better prepared for when they come to Yosemite, or even more importantly, is they're enjoying hopefully enjoying their world more. So I've had students that. Um, teach a course, a portfolio development course, and and people want to show me photographs from all their travels. I said, well, I can edit that and we can put together a portfolio of your travel photographs. But during this time, I want you to learn how to add to a portfolio too. So I want you to pick a subject nearby, a place you can go to during eight weeks or four weeks, whatever the length of the course is, and, and uh, get familiar with it. So introducing them to their own neighborhood uh, has been a powerful thing. And of course, with the pandemic, people were forced all of a sudden it's, you know, everybody's doing that. Yeah. But it's, uh, it just reinforces the, the uh, importance of just learning to see. And that means, that means it's a daily practice. Yeah. I, I find that interesting, the learning to see, because I noticed that when I spend time looking at, a book or two by a given photographer, I start picking up what they've seen and I can go out with my camera and sort of see what they see. And sometimes I'll look at a lot of William Eggleston pictures and then I'll see things that I would never see otherwise. And then other times, um, last year I got a book of photos by Ellsworth Kelly, who was more of a painter than a photographer. And a lot of his photos are shadows and angles and things. And I look at that, then I go and walk around and I see that same sort of stuff. So to me, the most important thing is to look at lots of photographs and learn to see the way other photographers see, and then develop your own style from that. Yeah, I think in college, I I just devoured books. So I'd go to the local bookstore and go through any new books. And then I found a used bookstore near where I lived and started diving into Sierra Club books, Elliot Porter books, and um, and the like. And, you know, I could buy them for a buck. And, you know, I had started a pretty good collection. And yeah, looking through them is important. And, and uh, 
So I already had that going, and then I end up at Ansel's gallery, and I, you know, I'm showing Ansel's work and hanging Philip Hyde's work, and you know, doing things that, and seeing other instructors' work um, was very, very instructive, uh, instructive for me. And seeing what a good print looks like is a big thing. That's real. Th that's true. Oh, yeah. 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 Now, however, anyone can see tons of photos on the internet. It's not the same as a book, though. Flipping from page to page or, you know, swiping is not the same as sitting with a really well-printed book and seeing the depth that there is in a photo. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a unreplaceable experience for sure. I have had the experience the other way around. I, one of my favorite books is called Landscapes of the Spirit, and it was published by Bullfinch back in the late 90s. And it, and it went out of print in about a year. And um, I I had the, the rights of, for the book after it went out of print. And got, I got the, what was it, uh, PageMaker file. Yeah. When I made the early books like that one, I didn't have Photoshop. So I had no control over it. I, here's a piece of film. You know, the printer sends it to their scanner. And then I see a proof. And that was pretty torturous. I, uh, two of my books, I even flowed, flew to Hong Kong to be on press, which was kind of the last possible step in those days to have some control over the reproduction. Um, so when the book went out of print and, and things evolved and to where I could uh, make an ebook, you know, I, I got all the, most of the images had been scanned, but I got all the images scanned and, and revived the book as an ebook. And, you know, look, compared to the physical book, the images are better in terms mm -hmm. because I worked on them. Right. And, and fixed things and, and nuance, you know, gave nuance to it that I couldn't do from a scanned four by five. Yeah. One okay. thing I'd like to mention is uh, that's been very exciting for me with this book is that through Rocky Nook's generosity, I, I, well, first of all, I, and convinced them to do a hardbound. So, and then I packaged it with uh, some prints. And so I have a deluxe edition. Nice. And I just have, I just have a, under 30 books left of the hardbound. So um, that's available on my website. And if you guys can you know, put a link to it, that'd be awesome. Sure. We'll definitely have a link in the show notes. Okay, William Neal, thank you very much. The book is Light on the Landscape, Photographs and Lessons from a Life in Photography. We'll be able to give away a couple of copies of this book. If you're a member of the Photoactive newsletter, you will automatically be entered in the prize draw, which is basically Jeff asking Siri for some random numbers. Uh, <laughs> if not, go to photoactive.co and sign up for the newsletter. William, thank you very much. This has been wonderful. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got? My snapshot this week is something that I've used for a long time. I don't think I've mentioned it before. And it's an app for the Mac called Trip Mode. And what Trip Mode does is it lets you selectively turn off applications access to the internet. Now, what's nice about this, normally I really don't use this when I'm just sitting in my house and I've got connected to my fiber internet. Everything's fine. However, I recently went and visited my mom on her rural farm outside of Sacramento. And the internet situation there is 
pretty dreadful. Basically, the best internet I could get was using my iPhone as a hotspot. Well, when you connect your computer, your computer's doing a lot of data transfer in the background, photo syncing. Uh, in my case, because I use Lightroom, I import photos into Lightroom. That syncs to Creative Cloud. Uh, I have Backblaze. There's iCloud. Like all sorts of things that are happening in the background. And if you have a nice, big, fat internet connection, it's perfectly fine. But if you are on a limited connection, or in the case at my mom's house, she uses these little Verizon hotspots that have like an absurd, I think, 15 gigabyte cap. And after that, the speed gets throttled way down. Well, I don't want to completely use up all of her data, which I could do probably in a day with all the crap that's running in the background. So what trip mode does is it lets you selectively turn these things on and off. So I can just say, don't allow iCloud access. Don't allow... Uh, Lightroom or don't allow Backblaze. And that just ensures that basically those do not connect out and use up your bandwidth. If you're not in a situation like that, it still works because trip mode will show you how much data you're using. Like in this session, the internet data you've used, you know, 45 megabytes or whatever. And so that can help you see where your data is going, which apps are really using it a lot. So it costs $15, as little as $15, excuse me, um, or up to $49 if you want to have licensing for, uh, you know, several people, several machines. Um, and it it's just very slick. It operates as a menu bar item, and I found it to be absolutely essential, especially if I'm doing any traveling. Kirk, what do you have this week? I have a book. Now, Yay. you know how I like cat photos. Um, I had no I, idea. I, I, I wish there were more <laughs> cat photos in the world. Um, there's a Japanese photographer who died in 2012 named Masahisa Fukase. And I mentioned one of his books a year or two ago called Ravens, which is widely considered one of the best photo books of you know modern times. Uh, a book of his was republished. It's called Sasuke, which was the name of a kitten that he adopted at some point. Um, the book was published in 79. So around that time, he adopted a kitten. The, the story is interesting. He adopted the kitten. It got lost. And he someone else had found a kitten, and it wasn't the same one. But he took that one anyway and named it Sasuke. Uh -huh. um, and so these are photos of two kittens, uh, Sasuke and Momo. And these are photos of cats by a photographer who is taking photos of cats as more than just cats and they're playing and they're doing things and they're sleeping and there's a whole section of cats yawning. But what's really interesting about this, I'm going to read a paragraph of uh, some comments he made. I spent so much time lying on my belly in an effort to get on the same level as a cat that I became a cat. What would be better than taking photographs of these two creatures I loved frolicking around day after day? I wasn't interested in the grace or cuteness of cats. I saw myself reflected in the cat's eyes. I wanted to photograph the love that I saw there. You might say it's a collection of self-portraits more than shots of Sasuke and Momo. 
And there are some extraordinary photos. I'm just going to hold one up for Jeff. So this is a photo that spans two pages in the books. And you can see there's a child holding a hose, pouring water in the street. And there's a line of the water going across the street and the cat right up next to the water. And it's this, the leading line of the water and the cat and the boy. And, and it's just an extraordinary photo. And he set out just to take photos of cats, but he found other interesting things. Here's one of a cat yawning close up. And it's, it's a fascinating little book. Um, it's cats. It's a great photographer. It's called Sasuke by Masahisa Fukasi. Nice. I wish more great photographers did books of cats. Maybe they did. Well, maybe they have lots and lots of photos of cats in their archives. They just haven't. And they've never made books of them. Entirely yep. possible. Okay. It's an That's untapped market. <laughs> okay. Till Thanks, next everybody. time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.